Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, June 16th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The Fed. Why one healthcare investor argues higher interest rates are bad for biotech, as if the sector needed any more bad news. Next, COVID-19 vaccines for the youngest kids. We're joined by FDA vaccine advisor Dr. Paul Offit on the vote to recommend both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines for the youngest age group yet. We'll start with a look at some of the other big news from the week in biopharma. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and how can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions so we're recording this on thursday morning and overnight we got some news from a not widely discussed but actually relatively momentous clinical trial for a novel alzheimer's therapy adam what happened Roche reported negative results Thursday from this clinical trial. It was for a beta amyloid targeting antibody called cronezumab. What was interesting about this clinical trial was that it enrolled people who were born with an inherited form of early onset Alzheimer's disease. These people, um, they were all actually all part of a family, an extended family from Colombia in South America. And they had this genetic mutation, which typically causes cognitive decline in the kind of the onset of Alzheimer's at a very early age, like in in, in their 40s. Um, and the idea here was that Roche thought that this antibody, by giving this antibody to, to these people before they had any signs of disease very early on, that it would either slow the progression of Alzheimer's or even prevent it. And, and unfortunately, that was not the case. As Roche reported this morning, they, they did show some small numerical differences with the drug compared to placebo. They, they didn't they didn't explain exactly what that meant, but the study didn't reach statistical significance. The, the differences were not meaningful, so the study failed. And this, of course, was supposed to be a big study validating the amyloid hypothesis, the idea that clearing amyloid plaques from the brain will have an impact in Alzheimer's disease. And it is the basis for so many of the drugs we talk about on the show, including, of course, Aduhelm. Does this mean the hypothesis is dead? <laughs> oh, Meg, please. Of course not. You know, there's always, there. you know, this is one of these lingering scientific theories that um, no matter how many clinical trials get run, uh, there will be rationales and explanations for why the next study, the next drug, 
may work where many others have failed. In this case, you know, with this Roche drug, uh, you know, there was some thought that it didn't really do a very good job of clearing beta amyloid from the brain. Uh, two prior clinical trials that were conducted with this drug in, in, in sort of more typical studies in, in people who had very early stage Alzheimer's, you know, didn't work, but maybe this, you know, maybe it would have worked in these, in these patients with this genetic form of Alzheimer's. It didn't work there. But of course, you know, we're, we're still waiting to see results from a, a different antibody that Roche is developing. We're going to get those results later this year. And then, of course, you mentioned Adjuhelm, uh, you know, Biogen and its partner, Esai, are developing another antibody uh, against Alzheimer's. And we're going to see those results also later this year. As Brian Scorney put it in a GIF on Twitter, what is dead may never die. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Damien, there was another clinical trial that was really interesting this week that read out. It was Pfizer's um, trial looking at Paxlovid, its COVID antiviral drug, in people at standard risk of severe disease, so those who don't have uh, a risk factor. Um, what did it find? Well, basically, it found there was no significant difference in preventing hospitalization among patients who got Paxlovid versus those who didn't. And, you know, this was kind of data we were all looking forward to, the very dramatic efficacy data that we probably all recall that got Paxlovid approved was from a study of people at risk for severe COVID who were not vaccinated. But for the majority of people, I think the majority of people who received Paxlovid in the months since then are likely vaccinated and likely to be either at lesser risk or if they are at high risk, they have been vaccinated. So, so that makes these data kind of perplexing, I think, for research, for experts and, and for physicians considering prescribing this medicine because it kind of muddies the water as to just how effective it is for this sizable population. And, you know, again, this is data via press release, as a lot of people pointed out. And, um, you know, our colleagues, Matt Herper and Jason Masts reported on this study. And, you know, the experts they spoke to were, I think, hesitant to draw broad conclusions from the information that we have so far. But it definitely suggests that Paxlovid is not this panacea for anyone who is infected for COVID-19. normally talk about the Federal Reserve on this show, but this week the central bank hiked interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point, the biggest increase since 1994, and signaled it could do it again next month. The move was aimed to try to curb inflation, but our guest this week thinks it could have an impact on the biotech industry as well. Les Funtleiter is a healthcare portfolio manager with E-Squared Capital Management and chief investment officer of Technic Health, which makes investments in private healthcare companies. He's also an adjunct professor of public health at Columbia. Les, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thank you for having me. So Les, explain what you see as the relationship between interest rates and biotech. Well, you know, I, I we've been writing for a really long time and, and, and teaching, actually, that there is a connection between interest rates and... Um, well, we'll call it all growth assets, but particularly biotech. And the transmission mechanism is probably twofold, really. But it, one is, as interest rates go up, cost of capital goes up. And as you know, um, cost of capital is maybe the most important thing other than clinical results for biotech companies. So it does have an effect of uh, pulling valuations down. And secondly, second order effect 
is that uh, interest rates signal sort of a risk off appetite and again, risky assets tend to uh, decline in a risk off assets. Should fairly self-explanatory. The environment right now for biotech is so bad. Could this make it worse? Well, biotech in general, in, in just in my experience, tends to forecast rates before uh, the rates actually happen. And, and that'll be relevant too when we turn back up. But uh, I think it, it'll get a little worse, but it, a lot of the interest rate hikes have already, in my judgment, been factored in uh, to particularly the small and mid-cap biotech industry. So um, it, it, we're, we're getting, we're, we'll get a little bit worse and we're certainly not going to get better until the Federal uh, Reserve decides that they've stopped. Um, but a lot of the damage has already been done. Well, I'm curious your thoughts on the damage that's already been done. As we speak, you know, some of the major indices are down 40 to 50% for the year um, after reaching such heights in 2020 and 2021. What are your thoughts on, on biotech more broadly? Is this, where are we in this sort of corrective cycle that apparently has happened? Uh, well, well, we'll file this one under history. doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Um, this does bit remind me quite a bit of the 2000 to 2003 era. Um, I would say if you, if in our working hypothesis at E squared is that we're probably about three quarters of the way through the Federal Reserve finishes up rate hikes, we'll call it mid 2023. So biotech particularly the risky ones, start to turn up maybe earlier in 2023. So six months left, maybe, eight months left. D depends on the Federal Reserve. If this was the last rate hike cycle, the last rate hike in the cycle, I suspect that we would start moving up sooner. And it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the, the, the Fed, though. And uh, I am a healthcare person, not a credit analyst. So I'm just using the... Uh, so the Fed futures as my uh, touchstone. Hey, listen, I wanted to ask you about uh, M&A and particularly the role that the, the Federal Trade Commission plays in kind of policing or regulating mergers and acquisitions. There, there was a workshop that the FTC held this week uh, specifically about biotech and pharma mergers. And it seems like, you know, the FTC is taking a little bit more heightened interest and concern about M&A in the biotech world. What's your thoughts on that? It, you know, is that one of the reasons why we're seeing maybe less M&A? And, and what, where do you see it kind of going into, into the next few months and years? Wall Street thinks pharma does M&A like Wall Street thinks where, oh, price is down, I should buy. Whereas the actual acquisition process of uh, companies is a lot more nuanced than just that. So, you know, companies tend to do M&A for really good strategic reasons and not valuation reasons. Um, second thought, and it has a lot to do with corporate, both corporate culture and what's going on at the target company, which also wants to be bought. Um, with respect to the FTC, I, I have noted that they are uh, more interested in pharma in particularly these days. And that has a lot to do with drug pricing. Um and my judgment, because, you know, drug prices are something that everybody's bothered by. And you have seen a uptick in, you know, discussions, Build Back Better, a number of other things, initiatives. So I would expect that all pharma mergers uh, are going to have a good hard look. I don't think early stage biotech mergers 
are going to get the scrutiny that maybe a company with uh, existing products will. What do you think of that argument that um, pharma M&A contributes to higher drug prices? Well, that's that's the theory. <laughs> I mean, and, um, the theory is if you have two companies with similar drugs that the, you know, they get rid of one of them and keep one and that, you know, the, the existing company, um, you know, will somehow raise prices without competition. I don't know that there's that much data to support that, but that's, you know, when the FTC, you know, I believe the C is, uh, or maybe it's not for competition, but they do care about competition and any indication that for some reason competition would be lower is a, um, you know, a, no, a no-go for them. But like I said, I, it's kind of, it, it is hard, particularly in early stage and mid-stage, because you don't even know if the drug's going to make it to the market. Right. We see so many situations where there are two drugs on the market that have sort of raised their prices in tandem. And there's even, I think, a new investigation going on into some blood thinners looking at whether there's some sort of collusion. But we've seen this across lots of different drugs like uh, insulin as well and some of the inflammatory drugs. Uh, It's not that, you know, having multiple drugs out there brings prices down all the time. It sometimes happens when the market is working. But so often in the drug industry, the market does not work rationally. Right. The market doesn't function properly in many ways. And that that's a market failure. And you can blame not just the drug companies, but the PBMs who are also getting investigated and some of the managed care companies. They seem to care less about drug prices uh, and more about just passing the prices along to their customers. So that's what has been happening. And um, you know, there were attempts, uh, there was even an attempt under the uh, Trump administration to do something about that, and um, nothing has happened yet. So uh, color me a little bit skeptical, uh, at least in the near term. So, Les, I wanted to return to your point about how this down cycle for biotech, its recovery is dependent upon big macro issues like the Fed or some of these things with the FTC or just other federal actions. That must be frustrating and kind of disheartening for individual investors or small biotech companies who have, are just seeing so many red numbers. And in some cases, a given company will have good news from a clinical trial and will not be, I guess, rewarded as maybe the wrong term, but will not see the bump in its stock price that it might have in very, very recent past. And I just wonder, you know, what is that like on the day to day to just kind of live during live under siege the way you seem to be? You know, I've been doing this so long that it's sort of like a, it's just another cycle. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I'm disheartened, but uh, I do know that there are a lot of people who this is their, we'll call it the first bear cycle. And, you know, because things have done so well for so long that they just don't know what to do. Um, I suppose the Ferrari dealership on, um, Greenwich Avenue is uh, <laughs> bummed because they're, uh, they're they're seeing few biotech people and a fewer crypto people. Uh, remind me, I'll send them some flowers. But the um, there's probably a good market in used Lamborghinis. Right, <laughs> there may very well be, and that's always, by the way, that's always been a good tell that the market's getting too hot is when you see too many uh, ugly colored expensive cars <laughs> running around. But, but um, you know, for me, no, because I know how it ends. Now, w- with respect to the smaller companies, 
you know, it, again, uh, there have been a lot of really first time and younger uh, CEOs, and I think they're having a hard time managing. I think the older, more, we'll call it more seasoned, because it's a better way of saying old uh, CEOs, are experienced with this, and they, they've kind of managed through it and know how to deal with it. And they've probably been taking precautions up to this point, you know, hoarding cash and that sort of thing. Um but to be to be fair, like any good clinical trial is is still going to have a good result, and you're still going to get drugs onto the market. So uh, those those folks with good drugs will are well poised to succeed in the next couple of uh, years. The the, um, the 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 going back to your M and A point though, uh, that's probably where you're going to see the action is when good you'll see good clinical trials because you know pharma doesn't want to buy you know they feel the risk off too so they're not going to want to go for the most risky assets at this point in the cycle which is a I think a mistake but that's just how they operate unless we know in the biopharma world that fundraising you know raising money is something that's done uh very frequently uh you know developing drugs is expensive what impact will this you know, these higher interest rates, like you said, and increasing cost of capital have on, particularly on smaller companies that are maybe less, you know, that have less money today? Um, are they looking at a sort of a bleak future? Uh, well, I think that, yeah, I think the market's telling you that because you've got a number of coming, I mean, what, 150, 170, I, I lose track. There's a running total of companies trading below cash value now, which is the market telling you that these companies are going to have, many of them are going to have financial distress in the next, you know, year or two. And there are more coming even, and even though there are some really large venture funds now, uh, I think on the private side as well, you're seeing starting just now to see a recognition that things are getting worse and you're starting to see some pressure on valuations there too. Um, Yes. And you've seen it because the ability to, uh, bring new issues to market and do secondary offerings have basically evaporated this uh, this year so far. And I would expect, uh, even though everybody thinks the second half is going to be great, I, well, probably will be better than the first half, but not not that much. So yes, they are going to uh, run into some trouble. You, you'll, you will see some chapter 11s. Uh, you'll probably see some mergers of, um, I want to say convenience, but mergers of survival. You'll see uh, a bunch of things happening. And again, I'm using my 2000 to 2003 playbook, and that's what uh, happened then. And I would expect that will be what happens now. All right, Les, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. I'm glad I could help. On Wednesday afternoon, advisors to the FDA voted to recommend both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech's COVID vaccines for babies and kids between six months and five years of age. If the FDA and CDC sign off, which they are expected to do, the vaccines could be made available to this youngest age group as soon as early next week. This moment comes about 18 months after the vaccines first became available for adults. And while polling suggests that only a minority of parents with kids in this age group will rush out to get the shots, for many of those parents, the wait was excruciating. Joining us now is Dr. Paul Offit, a vaccine scientist and infectious diseases physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a member of the FDA's Vaccines Advisory Committee. Dr. Offit, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thank you. My pleasure. 
So while the votes were both unanimous, there were some committee members who pointed out the risk to youngest kids of severe COVID-19 is pretty low. Do you agree with that? And how should parents think about whether to get their kids the COVID vaccine once it's available? Well, while it's true that you're much more likely to suffer severe or fatal disease if you're older, I'm roughly 80% of the deaths have been in people over 65, about 93% of the deaths have been in people over 55. The fact of the matter is, is that this virus can cause children to suffer serious illness, which can require hospitalization or intensive care unit admission or death. I mean, over the last two years, there's been about 45,000 hospitalizations for children less than five years of age. The, about a quarter of those uh, admissions so roughly 10,000 children have gone to the intensive care unit and about 450 have died. So um, if you can have a vaccine that safely prevents that illness, it's of value. I mean, every life is, is valuable. And so this, this virus is certainly common enough in children or causes enough suffering and hospitalization and death to warrant vaccination. How do you look at the differences between the two options, you know, the, the vaccine from Pfizer-BioNTech and then the one from Moderna? Right. So right now, Moderna's is a two-dose vaccine and Pfizer's is a three-dose vaccine. If you look at those two vaccines as as that, three versus two doses in terms of um, likely efficacy, I think they're, they're, they're pretty much equivalent. But um, one difference between those two vaccines is that if you look at just two doses, the Moderna vaccine will induce protection more quickly with two doses than Pfizer will with two doses. So, so a difference of, of, say, six versus 14 weeks, you're more likely to be protected six weeks after getting the, sec- the, the Moderna vaccine, starting your Moderna vaccine, than, uh, than the uh, Pfizer vaccine, where the protection would occur not till 14 weeks after you start the, the process. So... I think that there is that advantage right now. I do think when it's all said and done, Moderna's will also be a three-dose vaccine. As the parent of a three-year-old, I have many questions, burning questions. Um, What did you make of the reactogenicity differences? Because that was the whole argument. Pfizer wanted that very low dose of three micrograms. And, you know, they said it was sort of similar to taking placebo. Moderna's is 25 micrograms, a quarter of the adult dose. They perhaps had higher um, reactogenicity. Will this be something that we parents need to worry about with with you know high fevers if if we get Moderna? Right. So so with the Moderna vaccine, um, the incidence of fever was about twenty five percent. Fever actually is a good thing. Uh, no parents don't see it that way. Uh, but when when I never really consider these adverse events, they're just side effects. I mean, when you develop an immune response, that is often is expressed as fevers. I mean, a lot of the proteins that are made as part of your immune response cause you to have fever. Um, in fact, there are a number of studies showing that that if you pre-treat with anti-fever medicines before you get a vaccine, that you actually can lower the immune response to the vaccine. That's been shown for the influenza vaccine. It's been shown for the pneumococcal vaccine. So I know it's hard to sell this, but fever is actually a good thing. It's just hard to watch your child have to suffer a high temperature. Um, so yeah, it does look like the fever rate is somewhat higher for Moderna than Pfizer's vaccine. So, so you know, there's always a price to pay. I think the, the price that you pay for higher efficacy or at least quicker efficacy is fever, whereas the price that you pay for um, for using a lower dose, if you will, is that that you have a, uh, a, it takes you longer to develop efficacy. So speaking of immunity, there's been some discussion of the idea of immune imprinting, or sometimes described with the delightful phrase original antigenic sin, which is the notion that the first version of a virus or a vaccine that we're exposed to is the one that we'll always have the best immune response to. These vaccines are based on the original strain of the virus, and of course we're now on to the second subvariant of Omicron alone at this point in the U.S., 
Does that mean we'll be priming kids' immune systems to an obsolete version of the virus if we give them this vaccine? Does this matter? So the vaccines are made against the essentially the original strain, the, the Wuhan strain. Um, what's interesting is that, that when you get two doses of that vaccine with the so-called ancestral strain, um, you don't get a very broad immune response to these Omicron sub-variants, but you do get an excellent immune response against the original variants, against the alpha variant, the delta variant, the beta variant. You did, um, with, you know, with even with just two doses of vaccine. Omicron crossed the line. Omicron was immune evasive. The only way you were going to get a good immune response to Omicron or the subvariants was to get a third dose. But the fact of the matter is the third dose, even with the ancestral strain, does boost your immunity against Omicron, as was shown by Pfizer with their third dose. So that is an advantage. This is going to become an issue, actually, at the end of June, when our committee, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, considers whether to give an Omicron-specific vaccine in the fall. We'll see whether the data... Um, are consistent with that. But for right now, it looks like just three doses, even with the ancestral strain, does induce immune response against Omicron and the Omicron subvariants, at least good enough to protect you against serious illness, which is what you care about. So in this age of Omicron, you know, we've seen vaccine efficacy against mild disease decline significantly. You know, many people believe that we're all going to get COVID, you know, perhaps multiple times. If that's the case, how much protection do the vaccines provide against something like long COVID or, you know, or other long-term complications from the virus? I think it, it's true that the more likely you are to have a severe illness, the more likely you are to have long COVID. So, so, and because the vaccines prevent severe illness for the most part, then I think vaccines prevent or, 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 or not completely, but certainly decrease your chance of having long COVID. I do think that even if the entire world were vaccinated, this virus is still going to circulate. It's still going to cause mild disease. It is a short incubation period mucosal infection. For these kinds of viruses, um, it's very hard to protect against mild disease for a long time. As this thing from the longer incubation period diseases, incubation period from, meaning from the time when you're first exposed to when you develop symptoms. For the long incubation period diseases, just having immunological memory is good enough to protect you against mild disease. So you can actually eliminate those kinds of diseases. I mean, smallpox is a long incubation period disease. You can eliminate that virus. Rubella is a long incubation period disease, German measles. We eliminated that virus from this country by 2005. We're not going to eliminate this virus. This virus is going to be with us for decades, if not longer, because because it is a short incubation period, mucosal infection, just like the four viruses that circulate, the human strains of coronavirus that have circulated, first identified in the 60s, but they've been around for decades and decades before that. Um, we're not, even if you had a vaccine for those four strains, you would still see that virus circulating. Well, given that if we haven't already had COVID, we're likely going to, um, but there are some estimates that something like 70% of kids in the U.S. may already have had COVID. One question I'm hearing from a lot of parents is, do kids need to get vaccinated if they've already had COVID? And if yes, uh, and if they've had COVID recently, how long should they wait to get the vaccine? Right. So, so the question, and this, this, uh, this is a central question, does natural infection protect? And the answer to that question is yes, but it depends on the manner in which you were first infected. If you had an asymptomatic infection or a very mildly symptomatic infection, you were to some extent less likely to be protected in the long run than if you had a more moderate or severe infection because the amount of virus that was reproducing itself in your body varies between whether you had a mild infection or asymptomatic infection as compared to a more severe infection. With a vaccine, the dose is the same every time. You know the dose that you're getting with a vaccine, whereas the dose you get of the natural virus, if you will, is different. So I think there is an advantage 
certainly to vaccinating people who've already been naturally infected. And, and you're right. I mean, if you look, when we considered the data for the, uh, the five to 11 year old at the end of October, surprisingly at that time, about 40% of five to 11 years had already been infected, but most asymptomatically. And that's true here too for the young child. Most of those infections, the 70 to 80% of kids who were infected who were say less than five years of age, most of that is asymptomatic infection, which probably doesn't provide the kind of long lived protection that you would get if you boosted that initial immune response with the vaccine. So I definitely think it is a value to vaccinate uh, young children. And how long should parents wait to get the vaccine? And would it make a difference? Do you think there'll be any discussion of whether they should get the full series or just one dose of Moderna or two doses of Pfizer if they've already been infected? Uh, certainly, if they've had an infection, you should wait until they're completely asymptomatic before you would you would give a booster. But you, you, you know, once once there's there are no symptoms, I think you can you can comfortably give the vaccine. And I think you should give the whole the whole series. I do. I, I think that will provide the best longest lived protection. I think the the question we're going to have to answer, and we haven't answered it yet, and we will answer it in time, is when is it best to get vaccinated? And I think that's going to depend on how long immunological memory lasts depending on when you get it. I think it's going to depend on what variants arise and to what extent they're immune evasive. We'll see how this plays out. It may be that you're best getting a vaccine when you're 5 to 11 or best getting a vaccine when you're you know, 15 to 17 years of age. I think we'll just have to see how this plays out over time. But for right now, I think we should protect young children because they can be seriously infected with this virus. And um, and even though the risk is small, um, it's not a risk that's worth taking. I, one thing that always strikes me dealing with these parent advocacy groups like Families Fighting Flu or Manage Angels or National Meningitis Association, where you're talking about often being infected with a bacteria like meningococcus, which is relatively rare. I mean, there's only about 300, 350 cases of meningococcal disease a year in the United States. And so it's unlikely that you would get that infection. But those parents all tell the same story. Um, I can't believe that this happened to me until it happens to them. And then they become vigorous activists to educate about the disease or the vaccine. Don't take a chance that you don't have to take. But again, because it is relatively uncommon to get severe disease for a child, you have to make sure the vaccine is safe. And I think that the data we have so far is, is that it is safe. And the, the good news is, and, uh, is that, you know, billions of these of doses of these vaccines have been out here. Here you have this is probably the best studied vaccine in, in human history. We have a lot of data on this vaccine because we have systems in place to detect if there's rare side effects. I mean, myocarditis is a rare side effect, but it was picked up very quickly once it was out there in the population. I don't think there's much more to learn about this vaccine in terms of side effects. The myocarditis is it true that we heard in the Moderna 6 to 11 or maybe 6 to 17 presentation day, which was earlier this week, that you're, we, we're not really seeing myocarditis under the age of 11? Is that right? Um, that's right. Although I think that when this vaccine is added to millions of, of, of children, say 5 to 11 years of age, you're, you would likely start to see that it is, is also a rare cause of myocarditis. It would be surprising if that weren't true. Because the virus also causes myocarditis, and and certainly in children who have Miss C, who are naturally infected with the virus, uh, myocarditis is actually fairly common. I, I would be surprised if you didn't see myocarditis as a rare side effect, in, in frankly, in all age groups. I just think it seems to get rarer as you get younger, which is reassuring. Paul, maybe a, a personal question. You know, you've been part of this group of outside advisors that have that has worked with the FDA to help steer, you know, the approval of of COVID vaccines from adults to adolescents and now to small children and babies. Personally, like, what has that meant to you to be sort of part of this process? Well, actually, I don't know if you if you got a chance to listen to that meeting yesterday, but if you listen to the end of it, you could see that it got emotional. 
uh, we, you know, we first met to discuss COVID vaccines in December of 2020. Um, and that, you know, and so we've had a vaccine for adults for a year and a half. Um, you know, we met, um, about a year ago to discuss vaccines for the 12 to 15 year old. So we've had a vaccine available for those over 12 for a year. We met to discuss vaccines for the greater than six year old or five year old, uh, about six months ago. And, and so we've had a vaccine for that age group for six months. Yesterday, sort of, we completed the circle, right? We now have a vaccine available for people of all ages, um, but it took a year and a half. And I think um, it's been an, an enormous emotional effort. It's been a long, strange trip. And I think all of us feel uh, drained by it. And you could see it at the end. Uh, people were uh, very emotional at the end that we have now finally have a vaccine available for everyone. Paul, what what does having a vaccine once this gets through and out on, you know, an available um, for the youngest age groups, what does it mean for the pandemic? I mean, we know that not every parent is going to go out and get this. The state of Florida has not ordered any <laughs> uh, vaccines for kids under five. Um, does this mean the pandemic can end? Can it shift into a new stage in the U.S.? Or what does it really mean? Right. So the question is how you define pandemic. If you define pandemic as a virus which changes the way that we live, work or play, um, I think that's already started to fade. I, you, you see, we're, we do things now that we didn't do a couple of years ago. I mean, we, you know, 19,500 people pour into the Wells Fargo Center to watch the Philadelphia 76ers play. Very few people are wearing a mask indoors, you know, when the virus is still circulating. Um, you know, we go to sporting events. We go to large indoor events. People are having weddings and bar mitzvahs and et cetera, all indoors again. So we, I think in many ways, um, we, the pandemic is behind us. And certainly the goal of, of the, the, uh, the vaccine initially was to save the healthcare system. Because certainly our hospital, among others, was overwhelmed with this virus. We weren't able to take care of not only or well, as well as we like, the children that were infected with this virus, but all the other people, children who had acute symptoms, you know, that we needed to take care of. And we were canceling surgeries. It was, it was sort of all hands on deck. That's changed. I, I think this is, we've clearly entered the next phase of this, this pandemic. We are going to be dealing with this virus for decades, if you look at the two human coronaviruses, which were both bat viruses that were first identified in the 60s, it, the people that do research on this, looking at the genealogy of those strains, one arose in the late 1700s, the other in the late 1800s. This virus is going to be with us for the rest of my life, the rest of my children's lives, and the rest of their children's lives. So the question is, how are we going to deal with a virus that's going to continue to circulate, probably continue to mutate, and continue to cause mild infection? I think eventually we're going to have to deal with it and, and live our lives as we were before and just do the best we can to try and protect those who are most vulnerable. Well, Dr. Offit, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you still believe in the amyloid hypothesis. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.